Let's start with prayer. Before we start, I want to just, does anyone have any particular questions about the services or something that you've come across in reading or wondered aloud or your aunt or your mom said, what about this? Was that a yes? Well, I'll wait until I make sure everybody has questions. Does anybody have any questions? Josh, go ahead. Um, so as I understand, incense are similar to the blood of the old covenant, like cleansing the space, and then that when we're at home, incense at home, I know there's a difference between a, prayer, a priest, an ordained priest, you know, the church doing a house blessing. Um, what is our role besides not sinning, right, or sinning as least amount as possible in the use of incense to purify and cleanse our home, um, along with crosses and icons and holy water and those things. So, the space we live. so holy space, space dedicated and set aside, there is the house blessing. In the Orthodox Church, we have uh, the Feast of Theophany, which is our Lord's baptism that happens in early January. And basically the time after that up until Lent is the normal time that you go do house blessings, where the priest comes with the water, we call it Jordan water, the water that was blessed, uh, and he comes and do some prayers, and then he goes to your house singing the Traparian of Theophany and getting everything wet with the water that had been set aside. That is still the water that is actually in, that we has holy water is the water that was blessed at Theophany. If you run out, you can do another. There's a little blessing of water. There, there's things, and there's other times in the year where they might do that. Um, the burning of incense and those things in the home. Basically, remember how I've talked about this? I'll say there's like three temples. There's like the heavenly temple, here this temple, and then we're the temple. Well, your home is an extension of somewhere in that. If you I mean, I say there's temples there, like, even you go outside, like, you are in the temple of creation, right? So, home becomes, uh, St. John Chrysostom even talks about the family as a little church, uh, where the father is the leader, uh, everybody else, there is prayer, there is, um, he'll even talk about, St. John will get even really specific about, when you go home after Sunday, instead of just eating, you should eat, but then it's also you need to be breaking the word about what you read and what was proclaimed in the church and discuss it with your family. So there is, in our homes, there's an extension of church. As I, I didn't say, I didn't expand very much, but I alluded to the idea that we're churching everything. The mission of the church is to church everything. <clears throat> the way that some Russian theologians in the past century talk about is this is the, that we're basically kind of bringing everything underneath the cupola or, you know, the, t- the, the church, not in the sense of like dominance, but in transfiguring, bringing it up, blessing it, sanctifying it, and allowing it to actually come into relationship with God and how we use things, the space that we're in, etc. So it is the tradition for us to have, we call it a beautiful corner or an icon corner. Uh, you can get the things to be able to burn incense, um, say your prayers, 
read scripture, uh, sing hymns if you want. I mean, there's all sorts of, that is all available to do. There is, you can even have and bring, there's different practices of folks who will take holy water and they'll have it at home and they'll drink before they eat anything in the morning. Uh, even then, teeter on the, the breads that are used for prosphora, they will have it throughout the week. They will have uh, it uh, sitting there in the, and they will basically eat it throughout the week with some uh, holy water in the beginning of the morning, which is a pious practice of extending uh, the Eucharistic meal that happened on Sunday morning or if you have a feast. Any other questions? Yes. So I read somewhere like, this is becoming engaged to the church and you should have no other churches that could be like adulterous relationships. But like our kids still go Wednesday nights to like a Protestant church and they love it. Like is that, how far do you have to? So this would be something that you and I can sit down as a family and just discuss the specifics. Um, so there's kind of different levels of relating to other churches. There is, when you become a catechumen, it's like you are becoming engaged to the church. Uh, then when you join into the church, you are basically entering, I even used the metaphor of the wedding table, you know, the wedding feast. Uh, and so you are wed and the Orthodox Church is where you receive Holy Communion. Does that mean that you can never step foot into another church ever again? No. What it does mean, though, is that you should not receive sacraments outside of the Orthodox Church. So there's no communion to be had outside the Orthodox Church. If you do, then you are basically like committed adultery, and there's a time of, uh, we'll say the word penance or repentance, where there is coming to confession and figuring out what's going on, why did that, you know, and pastor, then that's where pastoral care comes in. So, what about prayer meetings? Um, if, um, if, you, if we were to attend a Sunday night prayer meeting at another church, would that uh, scandalize them and contain that, you know, they're good and then they're like, how is it? Yeah. I, so I would, with all of these situations, it would be something that I would want to sit down and discuss and see what the specifics, because everyone is in very different specific situations. Any other questions? Yes. Would, is prayer primarily using the structured prayer book, or is, it, is that kind of like a bare structure that you use to do your additional prayer? So, m prayer... We have prayer books and we have structured prayers in order for us to learn how to pray, but that does not mean, therefore, you should never have prayer that is something that comes from your own mouth or your own... It is giving you, just like when the, the disciples asked our Lord, teach us to pray, he didn't say, whatever you feel, you just tell God about it. If you look at the Old Testament, that, that, that is not, if you even read the prayers of the Old Testament that happens from, you know, Abraham and David and et cetera, they're almost, they follow a structure, they sound liturgical, they sound like the Psalms, <laughs> they sound liturgical. Um, so we have structure in order for us to learn how to pray, but the basic way I, I have encouraged and do it myself is, I will do the structured prayer to a point and then do prayer that is what is on my heart or, you know, 
it, it, just like the Jesus prayer and doing the Jesus prayer, that's not like a super structured thing, but it is, you know, I might think of somebody while I'm doing the Jesus prayer or reading the Psalms is another place. There, there's all sorts of diver, variety of practices of how we pray that is structured in different ways. And in some ways I would say like private prayer that is not out of a book is still structured in some way because you're, you're, you're praying to God the Father in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is always that understanding. And when you are clothed in and habituated to the prayers of the church, it helps that prayer to not just wander around or just kind of be, I don't know, but what was my experience of doing it? And this just might be me and I might just be not holy, but I could never really get very far in personal prayer in that way because my words, I can get, I don't know, I could just talk, but there's a certain like outpouring, but that maybe last five minutes. And then I have nowhere to, like, I, so having structure and being able to rely on the Psalms, to rely on structured prayer is something to help learn how to pray. Yeah, I, 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 would, I mean, I would agree. You're, the, the prayers you find in the prayer books, you're, you're really reading prayers that are written down by people who are really experts at it, very close to God. They, 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 they knew like our own faults and the problems of our heart, the problems of our relationships. They were experts at that. And, and, um, and in praying those, it does teach you how to pray. And then after a while, you'll, you'll internalize those. You'll, you'll, you'll say those. You'll catch yourself saying a prayer like that. Like you're standing in line in the store or something, and you'll catch yourself praying this prayer, and, and uh, you, you internalize it. But like in, in my prayer book, I've got my prayers, that I, the set prayers that I say, but then in the end, I, I've got posted notes long list of people that I pray for, things that I pray for also. I think also structured prayer challenges you and puts in front of you things that you might not have thought about or things that you don't want to think about that it brings up and puts right in front of you and then calls you out of yourself to be like, yeah, that, that did happen today. And otherwise I would have just not thought about it, but especially the evening prayers are, are specifically penitential. Is it possible that sometimes you're praying what would that mean? Like, for instance, okay, like you're driving in your car and you got the radio off and you got nothing besides, and, you, and you're just driving along and suddenly you're sort of thinking to yourself, you know, as a. So I think there's a difference between a meditative state or being open and having prayer directed towards God. I think that can be preparatory grounds for it, but I don't think it's at the place that I would say this is prayer yet. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I would only say one, just because it's, I think I told you this a few months ago, six months ago, but I used to have the same thing. I'm like, my prayers always started about, God, I really need this, and I'm struggling with this, and all these things are happening. And then I started with, built my icon corner and have my, my incense, and I just started praying this time. Try sagging on morning prayers, morning prayers, and I didn't notice it until afterwards, but I, I don't pray for myself. I don't pray for my own things anymore. Um, it was really weird, and now my prayer life is vibrant, and I look forward to it every morning. My day doesn't go well without it. My wish days are set. But, but in that, in the back of the study box, there's a spot at the bottom that says, now insert your own prayers, right? Your own. 
And so there are things that have come up that have come up through the, my morning prayers. Um, and now my prayer life is completely vibrant, but because there was a structure to it, and somebody that was way better at it told me what to do, so I just did it. And just being obedient to the church, trust in the church. There is something, that key of being obedient to the church and things that you may not fully have your mind wrapped around yet because it's an experience that you're not used to. But it's kind of like marriage. People can tell you what it's like to be married and you can have premarital counseling, your parents or somebody will give you all sorts of advice and then you experience it and then five years you have a certain experience of it. Ten years you have and you can look back and be like, oh, that was really right. Oh, no, that was really true. Mike. I wish I'd actually listened to that, but I thought I knew better than I'm seven years. And so there's something about being able to actually hear the advice and tradition of the church. There's a reason why we do it. It's not just because. It's not arbitrary. But everything in, as you can tell, in our services, to the theology, to the prayers at home, to the hymnody, to the icons, everything is this very... Uh, in some ways simple but also complex interwoven tapestry that if you want to say mm, I'm going to accept 50% of this you're not actually getting what the church is putting there for you so let's uh, shift now we can do a little bit more uh, at the end uh, of Q&A and let's uh, go back to we're on page 25 and finish up the anaphora section Let's see here. I'm just going to start uh, at he lived in this world. I know I talked about this a little bit, but I want us to start to be able to get the whole kind of sweep of this. You see it there in the middle of 25. He lived in this world and gave us commandments of salvation, releasing us from the delusions of idolatry. He brought us to knowledge of thee, the true God and Father. He obtained us for his own chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Having cleansed us in water and sanctified us with the Holy Spirit, he gave himself as a ransom to death, in which we were held captive, sold under sin. I'm going to stop right there. What do you think it means that St. Basil says he gave himself as a ransom to death? What does that mean? If we were held captive, it would be like the price to get us free or something like that. Like, like, a hot, like a hostage out. negotiation, yeah. What do you need to get the people out of the building? So God needed to pay off Satan in order to accomplish what he needed to do? Mm, no. no. So what is he talking about? What does it mean that he's ransomed? St. Gregory the Theologian very specifically says, what? Is it that God like needed to pay off the devil? He's like, no, that's not. I could read the whole thing, but that's the basic gist of what St. Gregory says it much better than I just did. But what, what do you think is going on here? Well, death is the enemy. Right. And so he had to ransom death by death. So he had to submit himself to death in order for the life that lives in him to bring, to defeat death so that death can no longer reign in our bodies. I like how you said to, to bring light into the darkness, basically. The Father's a lot, this is a very common thing throughout a lot of I'll say 4th century fathers, so that's a lot of the, the early fathers of the church that we have liturgies named after our brothers or cousins of these uh, men and women. Uh, some of the great first articulators 
uh, of the faith, they all kind of use this ransom language. Uh, and what they use especially, they use this image. It's actually from Job, and it has to do, and it's, you can see it in the Psalms, this idea that Jesus in his flesh was a hook that was put into the water to fish out, to capture the dragon or the uh, Leviathan in the ocean and the water, and to bring up the Leviathan. So what it is, is basically the way the fathers talk about it, is that Satan saw dead, this, you see it like in the temptations in the, in the, gospel, the gospels, where Satan is kind of pushing Jesus, you know, like question, you know, you know, this is not really your mission. What are you, what are you doing? Couldn't you really just kind of get around this? The, you know, basically, how is the way that you're going to say, do what your mission is without the cross involved, right? And so what the fathers talk about and this, that Satan, I, I mentioned this morning, and through some lot of icons, Satan or death is this creature that feeds on humanity, our body. Or he's eating dust, right? Like, he's a snake, so he's crawling around, so he wants dust. And he eats dust. And he wants to eat our, our bodies. He wants to destroy us. So, basically, the fathers talk about Jesus ransomed himself. He went and he did put himself in the place that where we all are, all are going to go and dying. But Satan, and this is in our hymnody, this is in Holy Week, this is, goes through that then... And you can kind of see this, it's not as grotesque in the icons, but in a lot of the icons of, uh, of the resurrection, right, you can see right over here. See how he's kind of bursting forth? You have these, uh, like, uh, mountains, and there's, like, this darkness underneath. And some of the icons, you can see somebody, the Satan and death is chained up because he's been held, uh, Christ has basically bound him up. And he's bringing people out of the darkness, out of the abyss. Uh, you, it's almost like what happened in the hymnody, we'll talk about it. Death swallowed Jesus thinking, ha ha, I won. <laughs> You're dead now. And then Jesus basically erupts from his belly and says, you thought that I was just, <laughs> now I'm God. And light and life is now going to dwell where death was. So the ransom is basically, it's like, it's like a Trojan horse. God gets in and then liberates everyone. So there's a ransom. He's like, ransom, he's placed, but you know, the devil didn't realize, or death didn't realize, that he actually had the key and he could just get out of the cage and break forth and then spring everybody out of Hades, out of jail. Is this where they went in the scripture where it talks about had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't know. He was kind of on a fast one in that the spirits didn't know, and had they known, they would not have crucified him because he would have gone down. I think you can play off that. There's a lot I, I could share. There, there are passages in Scripture that weren't familiar to me as I was reviewing this and reading this article trying to explicate this about the language in uh, Job, about fishing out the Leviathan in Psalms. And we're familiar with the chaos and the monsters that are kind of in, if you read the Psalms, right? There's these sea monsters. Uh, and that, that was a way of talking about death and how God eventually is going to destroy the dragon, the serpent, uh, all those images that you get in the Old Testament. Any questions about that image of salvation? Is and, it always that Jesus seems to free Adam and Eve first? Why do you think that would be? Because 
So I think on one level it's because they're first. They're also they represent us. They're iconic. Adam and Eve is us, right? They're the ark. So when he saves, he could. I mean, you can see that he's pulled. There's other people that are there present, but they are like uh, King David is usually there. You have other patriarchs and prophets that are that would have been in Hades. But he is symbolically pulling up Adam and Eve because he's taken human nature up. Humanity or humans, humankind. Right. In Hebrew, Eve means life. So it truly is that sense that they are representative of all of us. Something I've always learned when it said that Christ destroyed death by death, did he destroy it for everybody? Yes, the question is so there's the, uh, he destroyed Hades, the holding place. But there is still then the question of the end of time and what exactly the presence of God is going to be experienced by those who are closer to him and those who are further from him, metaphorically speaking. Well, we'll at some point towards the end of catechism, we'll talk a little bit more about that because the end, we talk about the resurrection of the, of the creed. So, as we just... Or discussing as we go along in the anaphora, descending through the cross into hell, Hades. Hell and Hades is this hard word that gets. We tend to say hell, but it, Hades is actually what the Greek says. Uh, so that he descending through the cross into hell, that he might fill all things with himself. He loosed the pangs of death. He freed everyone from death. He arose on the third day, having made for all flesh, Adam and Eve, a path to the resurrection from the dead since it was not possible for the author of life to be a victim of corruption. So he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the firstborn of the dead, that he might be himself truly the first in all things. Ascending into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he will come to render to every man according to his works. And as memorials of his saving passion, he has left us these things which we have set forth according to his command. For when he was about to go forth to his voluntary and ever-memorable and life-creating death, in the night in which he gave himself up to the life of the world, he took bread in his holy, pure hands, and having shown it to thee, the God and Father, having given thanks, blessed it, hallowed it, and broken it. He, this is then where we have the consecration of the elements. What we have in this whole movement from... Christ coming into the world and giving us commandments of salvation, which we will look to towards the end of this class about the Sermon on the Mount, so that he's come and given us knowledge of God the Father. When we look to Jesus Christ, he's also specifically taught us what it means to follow after him. He has then done a rescue operation where he's gone into the lowest place that any human can go in order to shine his light and to free all of us. And then given us, in, then we have that movement, so he comes into the world, he goes down into the very depths of death. Every pattern that like we talked about last time, he does every single thing that a human is going to experience. And then he is raised up, he's the firstborn of this. And then the, it continues by his ascension to sit at the right hand of God the Father, so that he is now set. And when we come to the Feast of Ascension, we are our celebration of Christ's salvation for us is that he is now, the flesh, human flesh, now sits in the heavens, seated besides God. 
so that we also have access into the very throne room of God. So there's all of these metaphors, and they all kind of fall like right on top of each other, that draw from very different interrelated veins from the Old Testament. We have, we've talked about, or I've tried using prophet, king, and priest. So we have priestly things here, right? Christ is giving sacrifice. We have prophetic things where Christ is teaching. We have kingly things where he's coming in and he's taking his servants, those that belong to him, and taking it from the usurper, the one who wants to destroy things. Um, what tends to happen a lot outside of orthodoxy is we usually tend to focus in on one metaphor or one image and make this is, and they'll even be like, churches will split <laughs> because not everybody is signed on to this is the image, this is the mechanism and how Jesus Christ, you have to understand it in this way. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, don't worry about it because you don't need to worry about it. But those who understand what I'm talking about, those who have a Lutheran or Reformer background, there is a very specific mechanism of the way they talk about how salvation works. And you can see in orthodoxy, we are talking about, in the way that scripture talks about it, all of these metaphors. There are Protestants, uh, and I would say Catholics too, because sometimes even Catholics can kind of reify and get stuck with particular images, uh, who will talk about the broader metaphors. But we really have enshrined for us, thankfully, the tradition of the church, the, the panoply, the whole bouquet of metaphors that are scriptural metaphors and images. By metaphor, I don't mean that it's not real. What I mean is we all talk poetically all the time to describe something. How do we love somebody? We don't just say, I love you. Well, we do say that, but like, and if I'm going to actually expand and talk about that, I have to start using metaphors, right? So scripture uses all of these metaphors so that it can speak to us in the way in which salvation has been wrought for us in Jesus Christ in all of these different ways. From not knowing what God wants us to do, to feeling alienated or not feeling clean enough or that kind of experience of like, do I, can I come into the presence? To like real death happening in our life, to little deaths, to all of the ways in which the human condition is fractured and needs healing from Jesus Christ. And then we come uh, to the high point uh, of the anaphora, and this is where we, the, the priest will point to and begin the process of the transformation of the bread and the wine, which we are basically, um, throughout all of this, we talk about the priest standing there and the one who is going to put his hand out, right, point at the bread, point at the chalice, one will have his hand over uh, consecrating the elements. But like every sacrament, it is Christ who is the one who is transforming the gifts. As we'll see in just a moment, it's also the gifts are him. He is basically everything in the anaphora because he's given us everything uh, to allow us to be able to participate in us also then giving back to him. Uh, we kind of have a mini drama of our own uh, faith, life, etc. that happens in a condensed form in the Eucharist and in the consecration and how our life needs to be in conformity to his. Any questions about 
the Eucharist in this, pointing to the chalice and to the bread. This is just scripture that we basically read. This is from 1 Corinthians. Uh, Drink it all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament. This is also found in the Gospels. It's the Gospels and 1 Corinthians kind of being put together that we are with the apostles. Jesus is there present among us, giving his body and his blood for us. Do this, as the priest says, as in echoing our Lord, do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death and you confess my resurrection. Then we remember all of the aspects of Christ's saving work for us. Not only his cross and his passion, but his three-day burial and resurrection from the dead. Because the way that we've been talking about how God saves us, it's the cross is like the heaviest image. It, 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 everything kind of flows to and from the cross. But that doesn't mean that we cut out all of the other things that are necessary. So that also means part of our salvation was wrought by Jesus in being buried him being raised from the dead, the resurrection, his ascending to the heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and his glorious and awesome second coming. This is then where the deacon takes and lifts up the discos and the chalice. The discos is just the word that we took, you can hear disc in there, right? That the, the patent, to use the Latin term. Uh, and then the priest raises his arm and we say, Thine own of thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. What do you think is happening in this motion and in this, what is being said by the priest here? It's at the top of 27. I've always thought it was just like, it's a wild thing if you think about it. It's like, Jesus going to be in the thing that's in the deacon's hands. The deacon's talking to Jesus. Like, it's like a whole Jesus uh, circle thing. Like, it's know. a whole Jesus circle thing. I yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, Jesus is, is all of it. You know, and it's wild. The fact that we're even here, that we're able to thank him, as we began at the beginning of, in Christendom of the Anaphora, like, for all of the benefits that have been bestowed upon us, whether manifest or unseen, the things that we know that we should thank God for and the things that we don't even realize that we need to thank God for. So we are given everything, our entire life. The problem is, like Adam, we, we have squandered it. But our Lord came, even though we squandered all that inheritance and what has been given to us, and he offers himself in the place of where we should have been offering, so that then we offer to God the Father the, what he has given that he offers, so it's this fascinating, thine own of thine own. So what is yours, we are offering. You've given us the ability to offer, and you've given yourself that we offer you. And this is not just for us, but it is for everyone. For Christ died, and his, his sacrifice, his faithfulness to the Father in going into death, as opposed to Adam, who basically ran away from God. Jesus looks and says, I'm going to go right into the beast, the belly of the beast, and I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to take up, and then I'm going to come right back up, that he does this on behalf of everyone. 
So our prayer encompasses our Lord's offering for the entirety of humanity. Yeah. Also, um, in the Old Covenant, when they would, uh, the one time of the year when they would make offers, they would do it for the whole world and to cleanse the whole world. And you see like this, the way that, that the tents were center, centered around and they would move out in concentric circles. That's also, I think, right, that we do that also for the whole world. We make sacrifice and pray for the entire world since he came and purified the whole world. We are, like I was saying in the homily, we are ambassadors, co-workers. I'm trying to use just Pauline metaphors here. Uh, we are all in this with him. He is the trailblazer. He's the one who has set the course. He's the one that makes any of it possible, period. <laughs> There, there isn't like we are out here as individual agents, like franchises or something, where we just send some money back to headquarters, right? Like, uh, in order to have the franchise. Like, no, we operate out of his grace, and we are kind of joining what, the work that he is already doing, uh, that we intercede for everyone, that we are... That intercede kind of covers praying, but also sharing... Uh, the gospel, the message, so that they can join us in being able to give thanksgiving and worship to God the Father because of this, what the work of Jesus Christ has done for us. Are we, are we, because he's the second Adam, and he came and did what Adam couldn't, and Adam and Eve were supposed to go and subdue the world and take paradise and the rest of the world, are we now able to do that in as much as as, as we are able to being close and to as you. much as Christ allow, right. gives us the opportunity to do so, yes. Right. But first, our territory is our own heart, right. and then we're usually given. I think a lot of people. And I'm, I'm not saying that you're saying this, Josh. A lot of people will take that image and be like, "We got to win the world for Christ," and that's true. But usually, what that means is, therefore, all of the eyes are looking out, and there's like no work actually being done <laughs> internally. And in the area in which they actually like your household, the places that you actually live in day to day, instead of something out, far outside of yourself. We see this reflected at the bottom of 27, where we're talking about the grace of Jesus. Um, what the priest says, therefore, this is in the middle of that, um, therefore, most holy master, we also thy sinful and unworthy servants, whom thou hast permitted to serve at thy holy altar, not because of our own righteousness, for we have done nothing good upon the earth, but because of thy mercy and compassions which thou hast richly poured out in us, we now dare to approach your holy altar, and offering to thee the antitypes of thy holy body and blood of thy Christ, we pray thee and call upon thee, O holy of holies, that by the favor of thy goodness, Thy Holy Spirit may come upon us and upon the gifts now offered to bless, hallow, and to show. The language of St. Basil's anaphora is a little bit different than Chrysostom's here. You can see there is, I've heard criticism of orthodoxy that we somehow are, believe in works righteousness, which is a very particular formulation of, that flows out of a particular way of understanding salvation that goes back to that mechanism of salvation that I was talking about. There is no sense, if, if we are co-workers and ambassadors with Christ, it is not because of anything that we have done per se as much as what God has given to us and graced us and blessed us to do. But that doesn't mean he's taken our agency such that we, we 
join him in doing the things, uh, the cleansing of our own souls, and then also for the sake of the world, but as just this prayer, like it's not because of something, my holiness, it's not because of my holiness that I stand in front of the altar, it is because of what Christ has done for us, that the Holy Spirit can come upon us, right, this is all the, also the focus. There can be a time where you can focus on the gifts that are on the altar, and it, it can almost become, and this can be a, te- a, a temptation, there's almost like magic. I'm going to get the medicine of immortality, the way the fathers will talk about the Eucharist, and this will just heal all the problems that I have. It doesn't work exactly like that. It's not that, it's not like an antibiotic where you just kind of take it and it just works on you. Uh, It is more complicated than that. It does work on you in ways that you don't understand. (laughs) But it is that you have to be present. The Holy Spirit come upon us and upon these gifts that are offered means that we have to, in conformity to Jesus Christ, offer ourselves, our lives, to uh, shed the way that Father Thomas Hopkins would talk about this. That we are, in in being in conformity to him, that means that we are crucifying ourselves. That our blood is spilt. That our spirit is being poured out in the same way for the life of the world that our Lord is. We don't save the world, but this is what it means to live. And so that is how we are to live as well. Any questions about that? To be clear, the Orthodox Church believes that the body and blood is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If I'm talking about this, I can't not. <laughs> I'm talking about it at a different level. So like, let's make sure that we understand that we do believe it is that. Uh, so that is part of the reason why if you are not a part uh, uh, fully of the church, there's not access to it until you're fully in the fold of the church. But it's something that the Holy Spirit is doing and not you. Where, where, where oh, yeah. Rome says it's the priest that's doing it. Well, the Holy Spirit's involved as well. The Holy Spirit comes down and turns it into the body of Yeah, the, 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 Roman, the, the Roman Missal does, does say the beginning today, the police is for the words of execution. He does... <laughs> So I don't want to get a crossfire talking about anything that Rome does because I don't know. I've been mass like three times. So uh, what I would say is it is the emphasis of, in orthodoxy, and I don't know what the emphasis outside is. The emphasis is a emphasis. There has to be a, a ordained priest in order to confect the, the Eucharist, but it is not because of me, Daniel. That, but it is the office because somebody has to be present to be able to physically present to do it in the way that Christ has given us over in the priesthood. Just like uh, the way to do baptism is you need a priest. If you're in an extreme case in the Orthodox Church, a layman can do a baptism. So, for example, there's a baby that's born. It's obvious this baby is going to pass. You there. Where the layman can go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and pour water upon the baby. In fact, the, the canons, the, it, it gets to a point where if you say you're in the desert and there's no water around and there's somebody's going to die and they want to be baptized, you can baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and kind of like put them up in the air or like lift them up in the air because there's humidity in the air. So in, in an extreme situation, that, that, that will be counted as baptism. 
So there is an understanding of mediation that needs to happen in a sacrament, Eucharist, confession, baptism, but it is Jesus Christ who is the one of forgiving you, the one giving himself, the one who you are being baptized by and into in baptism. That is always the focus. And there's always the prayers that are basically like, the priest says, like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. This is not because of anything that has to do with me, but what you're going to do. Any other questions? I want to hit one more thing before we go on to the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, after the consecration of the body and blood of Christ, the very bottom of 28, the priest says, and unite all of us to one another. So there's this vertical. Even in the uplifting of the gifts, there's a vertical, but then it's on behalf of all. It's like always the vertical is like taking up with it everything. That as soon as we have consecrated the gifts, we then turn and we say, unite all of us to one another who become partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. There is, the Eucharist is the sacrament of unity. This is uh, the heart, uh, and this is the way the uh, scripture talks about it. We have one bread, one, you know, one cup, one faith, one body, one baptism that Ephesians talks about. And that none of us are then pleased that we partake of body and blood of Christ for judgment or condemnation. If you want to look at 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 11, if I'm remembering the chapter correctly off the top of my head right now. This is the, where there is a problem about commun- uh, the Eucharist, uh, about the sharing of food on top of that. It, it's, there's a lot of debate exactly what is going on, but the core of the debate is in the sacrament of the Eucharist, there is division in the body. There are those who don't want to eat with each other. And there's also those, there is sickness, because there's always sickness in the church, there's sin present in the church, not only of division, but of other types of sin that is going on that is causing division. I'm thinking of the fellow who's sleeping with his father's wife, uh, that causes division in and of itself, that when we come together in partaking of the holy body and blood of Christ, uh, we want to make sure that we are in a position that we have, the way Paul talks about, rightly discerned what it is that we are receiving. Basically, that we're in a good place with God and that we're in a good place with others, as as much as possible uh, with a contrite heart. This is also then where we remember then all of those who have passed before us, ancestors, fathers, patriarchs, uh, everything, because the Eucharistic meal... If we've talked about the meal that happened on the side of Sinai in Exodus, we have Moses and the elders and God. The Eucharistic meal is then, because Christ has broken open Hades, uh, when we sit down to have this meal in the heavens with God, we are having it with everyone, all of the sanctified and the righteous that have gone on before us. This is also then where we remember those who have passed, uh, we go through the living, and then we go through. We first go through the saints and those who have reposed, and then we remember those who are living right after consecration. And at the very beginning, we remember the Theotokos, which is why we have that uh, commemoration of the Theotokos. Yes, Arnold. Now I've heard in my church, uh, pastors will say, 
that during just the communion of the people in church, that what you just talked about is happening. In the Lutheran church you heard that? Yes. Was, was that Dave or anybody else? Okay. I don't know if, I don't know. And all the, the saints and parents and everybody is there. Right. I don't know how normative, I don't know how normative that is for Lutherans to say that or not. I don't know if I've ever been to a Lutheran Sunday like that Eucharistic was very service. Moving. I remember that. that was... Any questions? I know I'm kind of moving fast, but it's also because we have an hour. If there are questions that come up about aspects of salvation or what we believe about Jesus Christ or specifically uh, with the Eucharist, um, please ask me. There are a lot of practical things, and we'll talk about a little more practical things as we get towards the end of catechesis, like how do I prepare myself? What you know? Uh, what is the relationship between confession and communion? All that kind of stuff. We will talk about that. Any specific questions? All right, we are going to look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, kind of twenty thousand feet in the air, but. We've talked about prophet, king, and priest of our Lord, and we've seen in the anaphora and the reception of the consecration of the gifts, the reception of Holy Communion, a way in which the temple and everything that God prepared Israel uh, through temple, through sacrifice, through communion at the altar, um, that that was uh, the priestly and the menu, even the kingly element of what he actually did in coming, uh, dying on the cross. Uh, going and releasing those who are captive. And so there's also the element of then, you could say, the prophetic, which is the teaching and uh, the teaching and clarifying who God is such that we don't serve the idols and the things that we put before us instead of God. The whole ministry of Jesus, you can kind of break it down into two things, which is his teaching and his, then the miracles that uh, he performs. And it is in the teaching of Jesus Christ that we get very much a condensed form of this is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We have where we see him, we see what he does, that understand that he is God in the flesh, but then there is the, the teaching of our Lord and we could talk about the parables, and the parables would be a whole other thing. But I want us to focus on the Sermon on the Mount, because I think you get uh, the basic summary of the teachings of Jesus Christ and what it is to follow him in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm, I know there's two different versions, and we're, we're just going to do uh, Matthew. Any questions about that? So this is one thing that I encourage you. I know that we've talked about... Uh, the reading of scripture being an important part, going back to that document, the, uh, the 12 ways. Um, I encourage you to sit down and read Matthew 5 through 7 uh, as you prepare to be received into the church. Because you may already know, but you may be surprised at how much Jesus covers in these three chapters that... Uh, will give you insight to all of the parables and the other teachings and then even how Paul and the other apostles explicate uh, what it is to follow God and Jesus Christ.
Any questions before we dive in? Let me ask this as a preliminary. What has been your experience of the Sermon on the Mount? It's wonderful. Five through seven is all I read sometimes in Matthew. <laughs> Just forget about the rest I, of Matthew. You know, <laughs> and, and, and then I go back to about 23. The, my favorite part is where the King of Glories will come mm-hmm. and separate the sheep from the goats. Mm-hmm. But I read five through seven a lot. And I find out a lot of a lot of things in there that other churches do not do or that people do not do. Yeah, there's always in reading the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, uh, uh, I know. I, I am not meek. <laughs> I really don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm going to set up the Sermon on the Mount before. Does anyone else have any particular experiences or quandaries? Praying for enemies. Praying for enemies. It's really difficult. Because I don't really feel like it. Okay, I'm a, you know, I've read the New Standard and different versions. Uh And I always go back to the King James. When thou doest thine alms, do so in secret. Let not thy right hand know what thy left hand is doing. But what churches, most of the churches I know don't do that because. People putting their arms in an envelope has got a number on it. It's associated with their name. Right. So So how can we do that? How can it be secret? We'll, we'll hit, we'll and hit and that I'll one. I'll hear that oh, only one or two people know it. That's still not in secret. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, so we'll, we'll talk about tithe and almsgiving, I think, uh, are not the same thing. But I would oh, okay. see a little bit of a difference there. But okay. So let's... When we're, as you're approaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the way that the Gospel of Matthew has the... Wh- where does the Sermon on the Mount happen in Matthew? So let's not talk about Luke. <laughs> what is it, where does it happen in Matthew? Do you remember where it happens? The Sermon on the Mount. It's on a mountain, right? Again, mountains, mountains, Doesn't mountains. he cross Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and go up to... Yes, he, he comes from, he's got, you know, as, as the Gospels tells us, he goes, he's going all over the place and there's people, all sorts of people around him. You have, basically, you have, uh, Jesus is reliving the life of Israel. You have him born, he goes to Egypt, he comes out of Egypt, uh, he's about to enter into his, the, sorry, he goes and he's baptized, Right? So he's left Egypt, he's baptized. What happens after the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Out in the desert. He goes out in the desert where he's tempted. You know, you're noticing a parallel, like he's in Israel, he goes to Egypt, he goes through the water, he goes into the desert where he is tempted. Israel, he's doing the whole path of Israel. Uh, what happens then? He, he brings to himself starts preaching about the kingdom. He brings disciples to himself. So out as he comes to start his ministry, he then, what happens? He then goes up on a mountain to teach. Moses. Moses on the mountain, right? Matthew is showing us how Jesus is going to do everything that Israel did through Moses, etc. 
And he gets up and he opens his mouth and he teaches them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When our Lord gets up to teach, he begins with a series of descriptions of what it is like to be a part of the kingdom, to be blessed. Does this beginning, these Beatitudes, as we call it, shorthand, is this brand new teaching? Is this, like, Jesus pure, and there's nothing else in this teaching, the Beatitudes? Josh is shaking his head no, I think, unless he's cold. No. (laughs) What is going, what, what, why do you say that, Josh? Because it's, it's, um, like, more succinct and beautiful expressions of Old Testament teaching. And sometimes even, it's, it's, it's sometimes explicit quotes from the Old Testament, right? The, the meek shall inherit the earth is one that comes to mind. That what you get in Jesus and his teaching, and this is something fundamental to remember, uh, is you're getting, as Josh eloquently said, like an a, a eloquent and condensed form of the basic teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke it says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is... Well, it's what we were just talking about at the end of the anaphora, where you are realizing and acknowledging, I don't really have much to offer here. <laughs> what I have is something that you have given to me, and so out of the strength of my spirit, I don't have much to offer. You're, it is going to be from you. That is, those are the ones who enter into the kingdom of heaven. What do you think it means to bless are those who mourn? Does that mean blessed are those who cry, who are who are suffering? What, what, what does it mean? I would I would like it to what he says that if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. And that you realize this life, your citizenship is heavenward. You really don't want to be here. You want to be with Christ. You mourn after the life that you live here because it's full of sin and corruption, and you're just fighting. Yes, I think the the mourning here is a, an acknowledgement. It. Augustine and uh, Christensen, if I remember correctly, but definitely Augustine, uh, looks at the, the Beatitudes, and they see it as a ladder, actually. You start with poverty of spirit. You mourn over the lack that you, uh, what you don't have. That makes you meek. It makes you pliable and able to be corrected and to be able to uh, receive what is going to come from heaven. Then you also, at the same time, then are hungering and thirst, thirsting after righteousness. Once you kind of turn down your own ego and your own desires and you move out of the way, then you are filled with the desire for what is good and right. 
and you'll be filled. There's all in this movement. It's not just I move out of the way or I shrink away and I get nothing in return. But it's actually it's the logic of the cross is all through this. As I empty myself, I am then actually filled. What if I am merciful? Then I will actually obtain mercy. If I am pure in heart. I will actually be able to see God. Otherwise, all I see is what I want to see. If I am a peacemaker, then I will actually become a son of God. And if I am doing this, if I am poor in spirit, if I am mourning the lack, if I am meek, if I am hungering and thirst after righteousness, if I become merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker, I am going to be persecuted. And I will be reviled. And I will take my place among the prophets. There's another kind of like, see, you need to go back and make sure that you understand the Old Testament scriptures. There is a a very popular teaching that I have encountered about the Sermon on the Mount, actually, that is that Jesus here is basically giving you impossible things to do. This is big in Lutheran and Reformed circles, actually, that this is for Luther. This is all law. This is Jesus saying, this is the thing, this is the impossible goal that you have that you're never going to get. And so Jesus will do all of this so that you can be able somehow, I, I don't really understand the practical element of that in my... We never got that. Good, I'm glad. But it's out there. I read it when I read commentaries when I was in high school and it boggled my mind. I didn't understand it. Um, what would you bother telling us about it? Do what? What would you bother telling it? Be, the idea is that you put out the, the law or the perfection so to be able to break you of thinking that you can do it on your own. Right. The, the, what is really... Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is breaking down into the very specific ways in which we need to be faithful to God like Jesus Christ. All of the Sermon on the Mount is like a verbal icon of Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be born in spirit. You're going to have to mourn. These are not things that are impossible. These, this is the path. You do need to become poor in spirit. It is possible. You do need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you will be reviled and persecuted. Because if you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to end up like him. Yes. Could you say that they're a journey and not a destination? Yes. And they all inter- they all kind of are interwoven together. You don't get purity of heart without poverty of spirit and the hunger and thirsting after righteousness and merciful being merciful, etc. They all work together. There's a kind of progression, but there's also uh, they they work together in order to be able to bring you to the place of following Jesus. Yes, Josh. Uh, two questions. One, is this what's commonly referred to as the icon of ladder of divine ascent? Or is that something? Really that is better? something a little bit different, but there, the, the fathers talk about ladders all over the place. Okay. I didn't know if it was that icon specifically. Uh, the second one is, is that if, it, if it were just things that were unattainable, then when people, saints that do see God, then either they're lying or the scripture isn't true, right? So... I mean, because if we're pure in heart and we get to see God and plenty of people have said they've seen God, then one of the two can't be true. So I think the answer would typically be that they were delusional or something. 
So as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you can see where our Lord is taking, because he says, you have heard, for example, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And what Jesus does is, as he has already confirmed and affirmed to them, like, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to destroy what the scriptures have said. What I've come is to fulfill them and to show you kind of the intensity or the depth of what the kingdom of heaven is, what God really wants. So that means that you've heard, don't murder. You're not supposed to even call your, your brother a fool or an idiot. In fact, he says you'll be in danger of hell, hellfire. If, and he goes, he keeps, if you have some issue with your brother, uh, you need to make sure that you correct that. You've heard of it, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus takes it from the act, and then he takes it back to the heart. And this is kind of another theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It is always going back to the heart. What is the state of your heart, and what is that, and how you are living? You have said of old, here's another one, you shall not swear falsely, you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, nor by God, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. You, didn't need, you don't need something outside of yourself. This is the practice. And I think we do it all today, all the time, right? Like, I'm trying to remember, there's some very popular ways to talk about this. Like, I swear my mother's grave. Right? Uh, which is basically you're taking something that's supposed to be. A stack of Bibles. Or a stack of Bibles. Like, oh, this kind of, this is where Jehovah's Witnesses won't do that in a courtroom, for example, uh, because they take this uh, kind of woodenly, I think. But what our Lord is saying is you shouldn't have to, your trustworthiness and what comes out of your mouth shouldn't have to relate to something else to like, support you. You should be able to say yes and no. And I don't have to refer to something outside of myself for my integrity. Then it goes to, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he says, nope, you're going to turn the other cheek. If anyone wants to sue you, take your tunic. You're going to not only give him your tunic, you're also going to give him your clothes. And you're going to uh, give to him who asks, etc. This is then, as he goes... Further, again, coming into what is the state of your heart, not just what is the action or the activity outside of yourself. This comes to doing with alms, to prayer, to fasting. When you give alms, and I think alms is a little bit different than what is given to the church. Alms is something that you give specifically to other people who are in need. Uh, I mean, the church is in need too, but I think there's something a little bit different of yeah, in sacrificing to the church and then giving alms or giving to those who ask of you. Uh, in scripture and in the, the tradition of the church, there were always beggars and folks available or around because we didn't live in cars and in the suburbs and keep people separated from each other like we do now. So it would have been a much easier thing for you to be able to give alms. Uh, but all of these things are to be done in secret and in integrity and actually ref reflect the state of your heart. You don't go around saying, you know, posting on, Insta <laughs> on Instagram or Facebook, like, look, here's 20 bucks that I'm giving to this homeless man, right? Like, here's me praying, you know, here's me 
fasting, like all of these things, like it is not for the sake of the world that you are doing these things, but it needs to be what is going on within your heart. Again, this then has to do with how we trust God and what we do with our things. You'll notice the pattern here. This is all about not outward show, but integrity that you're actually doing what the kingdom asks of you. That you, when you give, you do it in a certain way to not draw attention to yourself. Uh, that when you fast, you don't do it in a way to draw attention to yourself. When you pray, you're not going around trumpeting it about that I'm praying. Uh, and therefore, you're also not worried about the world and all the things of the world. But you, because you can't serve mammon, you have to serve God. You need to have everything in you oriented towards God and not mixed up with your priorities. You need to seek first the kingdom. This then also affects how we interact with others and the judging of others that we do not... All right, what do you think... This is the last thing I'm going to say about the Sermon on the Mount, and then we might get a little bit more of it uh, before the next class, just to, to finish it off before we move on to our next topic. Um, but we're out of time. What do you think it means when... I'm just going to read the passage. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It is very common to say, you're a Christian, how can you judge? If you have anything to say about the state of anything going on, is that what Jesus is talking about? Yeah. I think it's more of an interior thing. It's not so it's an interior thing in what way? It's not. It's not something you're doing necessarily to others. It's your own attitude yourself. I think the other word that has been bubbling up as we talk about this, that I wasn't thinking about it beforehand, but I think is integrity. That if you are going, because it says, if you're going to remove the plank from your own eye first, that's what you need to do. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite, right? Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it assumes, just like earlier, like it assumes you're fasting. <laughs> it assumes you're giving alms. It assumes that you're praying. And here, it assumes that you're helping others but you can't go around acting like you can judge others when you yourself are just as guilty of that thing. Because you can't help anybody. <laughs> if you're going around talking, it's like going around giving alms and you're not really helping anybody. But you're not actually serving and helping somebody. You're actually getting the attention for yourself in that little selfie that you take while you do it. So that's kind of self-righteousness. It is self-righteousness. Okay. So what I, when I mean... We need to be careful about judging others, period. I, what I'm saying, I think a lot of people will misquote this passage and talk about, you're a Christian, you love people, you accept people, therefore you cannot judge. Well, then we're also told to judge righteously and to discern and to, make, like, to be able to understand what God, God wills. But here he's talking about, you need to have integrity. So if you're going to actually help somebody, this is reflected in, later in the epistles, like, if you're going to help somebody in sin, you need to watch out because you're going to fall into it yourself if you don't. Uh, Jim? There's also a difference between 
recognizing when someone is doing something, seeing that somebody is behaving in a manner. And you can call a thing what it is, but condemnation is not ours to give. It's right. not our place to say, so-and-so is committing adultery, and they should burn in hell. It's not our place to say what should happen to them. We can recognize a behavior as being wrong. We're not the ones to meet out punishment for it. That's, there's a world of difference of seeing it and determining what should happen to that person. And I think that's where we're really skating on the thin ice with condemnation. Yes. And if we're going to go around condemning others, do we really want to be condemned for those sorts of things? It's in God's hands what should happen to all of us, ourselves and for the things that we do. It's like you could loop back with every one of these like in more depth with judging others, trusting God for your basic needs, you can loop back to the Beatitudes and be like, <laughs> what, I need to be poor in spirit, I need to be in a, a position such that the kingdom and God can, that I can recognize what I, what, where I really exist in all of this, instead of trying to take it upon myself. Also, you can't know who, who's in hell. There's, like, yeah. so I, 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 I'm not going to pray for that person because well, he's in hell. You know, Hitler's in hell, so why bother to pray for him? That, I do not think that would reflect the heart that Scripture asks us to have. Yeah. Is it also talking to, it's also kind of saying, like, not, I've always been taught that we were not to be judging. And it's, it's hard to get non-Christians rules for Christianity because why would they apply but he's talking about a brother, right? So he's talking about Christians, like, saying something to other Christians and saying, hey, there's a speck in your eye, but I already know mine, or don't say that until yours is removed. But it's really about the church, right? I mean, because it's hard to tell not Christians to do Christian things if they don't have Christ, right? Right. I, I, I think there is something here, like, what I was referring to, I believe it's at the end of Galatians, where it's talking about if you're going to help a brother in their sin, you need to basically check yourself, <laughs> before you're doing such because you're liable and thinking that you're going to be able to help them that you actually fall into what is going on. Right. Or you can be really sensitive and judgy about what somebody is doing because you've got that huge log hanging out of your eye. So, yeah. again, check yourself. It's <laughs> like you get caught up in like pointing out other people's stuff to avoid working on your stuff. Yes. To avoid doing all the work that the Beatitudes are presuming that you're doing internal work on your heart. I can't think of it like an appropriate, I, I think of like the term charity starts at home, but I can't think of an appropriate way to say it to uh, judging oneself or whatever, but let's say get your own house in order and mm. kind of thing. Or I also think that. I, don't I just think check you yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or uh, who's the same who said, uh, you know, save yourself and. Or a thousand people around you. Saint Seraphim Masrav, the, the saying of save yourself and the thousands around you will be saved. Yeah. You can see in the Sermon on the Mount there is the internalization and the intensity of following into the kingdom that is what Israel was supposed to do and then Jesus did and now we're supposed to follow after what Jesus blazed the way to heaven for us to be able to live that life here and now as the church. Let's end with prayer and then we will continue next time. Slow down all the public servant and part of the peace according to thy word, for thy eyes and seen that salvation and salvation shall pay before the face of all people alike to the lives of the Gentiles and the